Peter, Sunday morning studying the book of 2 Peter together. If you're with us this morning and you do not have a Bible with you, there are men coming up the aisles right now with lots of Bibles. If you just wave and get their attention, then they'll get one into your hands and you'll be able to hear the Word of God and also read along, which is the best way for all that to happen. And then if you don't own a Bible, please consider that Bible a gift to you from the Lord. Second Peter chapter 1, we pick things up in verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the voice of your Holy Spirit through your word. Lord, every week we are just inundated with so many voices and so many things attached to all of this communication that just pours into our lives and this information indoctrination age. And we're so glad to be able to, anytime we want, just break free of it, open up this wonderful book, and to hear your voice. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, your very present Holy Spirit, to our very individual lives, Lord, this morning through your word and from your word. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Second Peter was written to Christians who were not only in the midst of a great persecution and opposition from those who were without, that is the world around them, but they were also facing a persecution from those uh, within. They were facing a persecution and an opposition that was being brought against them by false prophets and false teachers who had infiltrated the churches as early as uh, the early church here and brought in all of their false doctrine and all of their false teaching. And essentially what they were teaching was what we would call today kind of a liberal theology. And the idea is teaching that of the importance of being saved, of putting our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But then having done that, nobody has to really be serious 
about holiness or Christ-likeness or obeying the Word of God. And so we don't need to be serious about Jesus' call to live a holy life or a Christ-like life. And so the attack was upon obedience and holiness. And it's the same old drumbeat. We'll get into it when we get into chapter 2. But this same nonsense is going on even today. But that's, that's where they were coming from, and that's what Peter was having to deal with and what he was writing against. Peter has told us in verses 3 and 4, just told us, that the Christianity that Jesus has provided us with cannot be improved upon by false prophets or by false teachers. The Christianity that we enjoy that comes out of this Holy Spirit-inspired book and the Christianity that we enjoy as we simply obey what is taught in this book and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's Christianity. And it can't be improved upon. And any attempt to move us away from the clear teaching of the Word of God is false. And if it's false, it's going to lead us into something inferior. And in fact, infinitely inferior. Because that's the distance between the wisdom that's found in this book and man's wisdom, even when it tries to hide itself under the guise of religion or theology. He's already told us that we possess all the power that's needed in order to live a godly life. We also possess the greatest example of holiness and holy living, Jesus himself, that we possess the highest motivation we can possess for living a godly and a holy life, and that is because out of a desire to know Jesus better and to go deeper in our relationship with him, and also he has told us that holy living leads us into a life of freedom. It allows us to live a life that is free of the corruption that is in the world, as he put it, uh, through lust. And so he tells us in verse 5, and he uses the phrase, for this very reason. And it is for this very reason that we are to live a holy Christ-like life. And so when he talks about for this very reason, he's talking about these things in verses 3 and 4. I want you to notice a word in verse 5, and it's worth circling on the printed page, but at least circle it in your heart and in your mind. And it's that word add, because it's the whole key to what uh, the Apostle Peter is trying to communicate to us here. And that word add in the original language, it means to supply further or to add more unto. And so he tells us, add to your faith. Well, what is this faith? This faith refers to a saving faith. In other words, when a person becomes a Christian by putting their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that's not the end of Christianity. That's just the beginning of the Christian life. And so our salvation is to be followed by a growth in godly character, a growth in holiness and in Christ-likeness. Not to earn salvation. We cannot earn salvation from God. That's why he made it a free gift to us. 
But we now obey God's Word because we are saved. When we become saved, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and we are under new management. We used to be under the management of sin, under the management of selfishness, under the management of our old flesh, our old nature that we received from Adam and Eve. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But now, because of our faith in Jesus, we are under the management of the Holy Spirit. And as we might expect of one who is named the Holy Spirit to come under his management is going to become progressively more and more holy or more and more Christ-like. And that's one of the names of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. One of my favorite names for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the Spirit of Christ. Why is he the Holy Spirit? And then why is he the Spirit of Christ? Because when we're talking about holiness, we are talking about Christ. He is the definition of holiness, the living, walking, breathing example of holiness. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he begins a work of producing the life of Christ in us and the life of Christ through us. Now, Sadly to say, many, many, many Christians, and I might even be so bold as to say perhaps with, with some accuracy, only God knows, but maybe it's true of most Christians, grow to a place where the place that they want to grow spiritually and then they just simply stop growing. There comes a point in their Christian life where they say, that's as holy as I want to be. That's as Christ-like as I want to be. I'm not willing to say no to my flesh or my selfishness or my sinful desires beyond this point that God has brought me. I'm not willing to make the sacrifice. I feel like I'll miss out on too much I'm no longer willing to deny my flesh the sin that it longs for, and I'm unwilling to take the next step of faith in God's plan for my life. And so the person just stops growing at that point, and they camp right there. Some people do it six weeks after they've become Christians. Others six months, others six years, others 20 years. They experience no more growth for years or decades, even for the rest of their lives. And you meet them 20 years later, and spiritually they're exactly the same person as they were 20 years earlier. No greater knowledge of the Word of God. No greater intimacy in a relationship with God. No greater revelation from the throne of God that comes out of a deep relationship with God. No deeper prayer life. No expanded service and influence for God in the world around them. And they never grow to the place God wants them to grow. And they never become the person God wanted to make them into. And so they just hijack their life away from God. And they decide that they want to define their Christianity. They want to define their life as opposed to letting God do that. 
And a person doesn't have to come under the influence of some false prophet or some false teacher in order for that to happen. There's a false teacher inside of every one of us. It's called the flesh. It's called the fallen nature. That guy lies to me every single day he lies to me. He never tells me the truth. And he never directs me in the truth of the Word of God because he knows that for me to advance in my relationship in a way that looks like the Word of God comes at the expense of him, at his death. I don't need to get a 10-hour series of teaching from a false teacher or a false prophet to fall for this lie. That liar lives inside of me. I have a flesh that I wake up to every day that screams bloody murder, that this is as far as we need to go in this Christian thing that you're involved in. And we don't need to go any further than that. We can just stop right here and we can just camp right here in this place. That's the flesh. We don't have... We have the liar right inside of us. And if a person believes that liar, whether from the outside or the inside, I've got enough voices in my own head. If we believe that lie, we believe that teaching, then this kind of person then ends up choosing to live a life of uh, protracted infancy in their Christian life or protracted adolescence. They never come to maturity. They never grow up. The gap between what the Bible calls me to be as a Christian in terms of holiness and Christ-likeness and what I actually am should always be narrowing. It should never remain the same, and it should never, ever be expanding. No Christian will ever be perfect this side of heaven. We accept that the teaching of the Word of God. But each of us should be growing more and more like Christ as time goes on because that's what the Holy Spirit does in a life that is submitted to God. So if the longer I walk, and it's one of the great temptations that happens, so often not with a new Christian, it's, it's the temptation of the veteran who's been around for a long time. If the longer I walk with the Lord that gap is getting greater rather than narrowing, or it's remaining the same, I've ceased to grow, then it reveals there's something very wrong in my commitment to God. Because that is not a Christianity that the Bible knows anything about. That is not a normal Christianity. That is not a biblical Christianity. And a Christian wherein a Christianity wherein one is saved, but then willfully settles into a life dominated by the flesh. That's not the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross to provide for us. He did not pray, he did not pay that price on the cross for us to settle into something that mediocre. And there really should be a sanctified shame in the heart of any Christian who settles there. If Christ is the standard for holiness, and he is, then there will be room for growth in Christ-likeness for the rest of our lives until our final moments in this world. 
I think about the Apostle Paul in this vein, where he's just uh, writes his second epistle to Timothy. He's at the end of his life, and he knows that he's imprisoned at the time. And he knows a martyr's death is right around the corner, just less than months away for him. And he writes the letter to Timothy, and he said, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. It's cold in this prison, and I need something to keep me warm. And he said, And the books, especially the parchments. He wanted to continue to grow in his knowledge of the Word and in his Christian ministry all the way to the end. You look and say, Paul, I mean, look at this. You're already going to be in the Hall of Fame. Look at the life you've lived. Look at the greatness. Look at the influence. And now you've just got a few months left before you're going to die a martyr's death. You can just relax and coast your way in. And he wouldn't do it. And you know why he wouldn't do it? Because that's not what the Holy Spirit does in a person's life. Not in an apostle's life. And not in a regular Christian like me life. And Paul's a great example in all of this. And as Christians, it isn't enough for us to be saved, as wonderful as that is. But we need to continue to grow spiritually. And he tells us in verses 5 and through 7 some of the things that we are to grow into. And he lists seven virtues here that Christians are always to be growing into. So we say, what, or I'm supposed to be growing, but what does that look like? And so he lists these. Now, there's seven wonderful things that he lists. Sometimes you see lists like this in the Scriptures where you've got one thing right after another. And one of the reasons that uh, things were written that way in the ancient world is they just didn't, everybody just didn't have a Bible on their lap. Or books weren't that readily accessible. And so these were means by which it was easy to memorize something in germ form and allow the Holy Spirit to work that in a person's life. You can look at these seven virtues and, and say, well, one builds upon another, upon another, upon another. And yeah, a person can lay a little bit of a case related to that. It falters here and there. I'm inclined to believe that Paul, uh, Peter includes these seven virtues because these seven virtues were the Christian virtues that were the most under attack by the false prophets and the false teachers of the day. And so he's defending them. He's protecting their place in our lives as Christians. And so the list of the seven, he tells us in verse 5, to our faith, that is our trust in Jesus for salvation, that's what makes us Christians. We're to add virtue. The word virtue, when's the last time you heard virtue? There's a word in this culture. It's just demonized. Nobody talks about it anymore because of where the culture is. The word virtue literally means moral excellence. Just give me a moment with that definition is so foreign to what comes before my eyes, even as a Christian, week in and week out. It's so foreign to what comes into my ears that I, lo I love the words, to say nothing of the reality of the words. Moral excellence 
Excellence of character is another way to put it. In other words, holiness, purity, goodness. Not just outwardly of action, but inside character. Not just the outside, but the inside. And Peter ascribed the same word virtue to Jesus in verse 3. So we So he is the life that we look to as an example for moral excellence and excellence of character in the world around us. All we have to do is to look to him. I have to look anywhere else for it. And in doing so, we will always be growing toward the moral excellence and the excellence of character that we find in him and away from the world's definitions of morality and character. And the false teachers were saying it really didn't matter what kind of morality or character a Christian exhibited before the world. But Peter says, no, it does matter. And our lives are to be marked by virtue. And to virtue, he says, we're to add knowledge there in verse 5. We say, well, where do we get our definitions of virtue? Where do we learn more about Jesus? From the Bible? That's where we find out about him to find out what pleases him. And we gain this knowledge as we learn God's word and as we obey his word. There's a, I like everything that Jesus said. And my favorite thing of whatever he has said is whatever I happen to be teaching at the moment. But I really like what he said in John seven seventeen, And he said, if anyone wills to do his will, that is God's will, He shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. In other words, Jesus supplied each of us in this room with an absolutely foolproof way to know the truth about him and his doctrine. Is he just some charlatan that rose up on the scene of human history 2,000 years ago and declared that his was the way of truth among so many other voices for truth all the way through history that just leave people disappointed and, and waste their life? Jesus declared that if anyone has a sincere desire to know whether the truth that he spoke was divine or not, really true or not, all that they needed to do in order to clear up all doubt was to simply begin to obey his teaching and they would soon discover his truth to be true. How? By the quality of life that is produced by simple obedience to the Word of God compared to the quality of life that is produced by all of the other voices in this world and all of the other voices in human history. You don't have to take someone else's word for the truth of Jesus' teaching. You can have your own personal, experiential, living proof of the truthfulness of his teaching. You can become your own proof your very life become the undeniable testimony to the divine origin of the words of Jesus. And the false teachers were claiming to have a knowledge and a revelation of spiritual things that was deeper than the Bible. There is no source, no deeper source, no greater source of spiritual truth in the world than the Bible. There is no other source of spiritual truth in the world other than the Bible. 
And so this is, this is why you have the trend that's occurring today has been occurring for about 20 years. It continues to go on. It's very, very disheartening. But this is why the de-emphasis upon the teaching of the Bible, not just preaching, but the teaching of the Bible in a local church is a very, very bad sign because if you de-emphasize the Word of God, what are you going to replace it with? And you have to replace it with something. And what we will replace it with, again, will be infinitely inferior to what is found in the book before us. He tells us that to our knowledge, we are to add self-control. And again, this occurs by the Holy Spirit in our life. He gives us a desire to live a self-controlled life. Why? Because we want to excel in this Christian life. We want to become like Christ. We want people to see Christ in our life. We don't want them to see shadows of Him. We don't want them to see Him every third Monday. We don't want them to see every other day. We want them to see Christ in our life continually. You cannot have excellence in any area of life without self-control, at least some measure of self-control. You take the athlete who becomes a world-renowned athlete. He or she will never become that apart from self-control. That doesn't just happen. They say no to a world of things in order to excel in that athletic endeavor. You take a musician who becomes world-renowned. Great self-control is behind that talent. They have said no to a world of things for years and for decades in order to become great on that instrument. And the same thing is true of the soldier. But the same thing is true of the Christian. No Christian will ever become great for God apart from self-control. Where the thing that they long for is such a desire in their heart that they're willing to say no to all manner of things that would hinder them in any way of growing in that relationship with Christ. And Paul knew something of it. First Corinthians chapter 9, he said, but I discipline my body. He said, literally, I beat it black and blue and bring it into subjection, the old nature lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. And so self-control means mastering sinful emotions and desires rather than being controlled by them. And it occurs when reason, some reason, you will never beat emotion with more emotion. Self-discipline occurs when reason some reason supplied to us from God's Word fights against the sinful emotions and desires, and it prevails. Again, it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit within our lives, and that great, great reason that we have for self-control is the relationship that we have with God. We don't have to obey every urge of our body. We don't have to obey 
every emotion that we feel as Christians. We had to before we came to know Christ, but now we don't have to. Somebody says, well, that's not easy. (laughs) Are you kidding me? To obey God's Word is the death of us. It means the death of us, but it means the death of a part of us that we want to die. You ever go into a store and see a kid throwing a fit? It's always terrible. It's terrible when it happens to you, for sure. I mean, it's bad enough to watch somewhere else, but it's kind of like surgery, where they say you're going to go in for minor surgery. Minor surgery is surgery other people have. But you walk in, and here's this three-year-old or five-year-old, and they've thrown themselves in front of the candy or the toys or whatever it is, and they're on the floor, and they're kicking their feet, and they're just beet red. You'd be concerned they'd have a stroke, except they're so young, their cardiovascular system's okay, and they're screaming and all, and then the mom's saying, oh, sweetie, I know that you can do better than that, and you're trying to reason with them. And I just feel like saying, listen, just give me 30 seconds. And that kid will be at your side at the cash register and march with you. I'll put the fear of me in them. (laughs) But we all recognize that I'm not acting superior related to the scene. That's what my flesh does when I say no to it. What my flesh, the protest that my old nature puts up, in the face of self-discipline and obeying the Word of God makes one of those little kids on the floor look like a saint. And so, yeah, no, it'll cry bloody murder. But there, again, the power of the Holy Spirit within us who gives us a desire for greatness in the kingdom of God and in our relationship with God and then the power to rise up to that so that we can say no to the flesh We can say yes to God. And the false teachers were teaching that the truly spiritual and enlightened people were those who realized that you don't really need to control your passions and your emotions, that you need to just express them and go with them. I mean, after all, that's how God made you, and everything's being hidden behind that today, isn't it? Listen, that's what you feel, that's what you think, that's your urges that you have. I mean, you got to go with it. Isn't that the way God made you? (laughs) Listen, there's a fall in human history between man, when man was created and every one of us in this room. None of us are how God created us or how God intended any of us to be. Adam and Eve know what that was like. We will know that in heaven. But it is, the false teachers were coming in and saying, well, listen, how could it be so bad if you feel it so strongly and the urges are so strong, and so you need to just roll with all of that. And Peter says, no, self-control, because where our sinful urges and our sinful emotions will take us in life and the life it will produce, and where God wants to take us in life are two very entirely different things. And there's no comparison between the two lives. And God knows it, and the Holy Spirit knows it. And to our persevere, or self-control, verse 6, we're to add perseverance. I like this word perseverance. The original language 
The Greek is hupomone. Sounds a little Italian to me. Hupomone, hupomone. Get that accordion going. Let's do the hupomone. Come on. I have some spaghetti, and would you put a little drizzle of hupomone on it? I'll have the garbanzo beans on the salad, and could you put a, just a fistful of hupomone on there as well? That's a Greek word. You excuse me. I enjoy the word. Can I enjoy the Bible? But it means to remain under, literally. It means steadfast endurance. It means just continuing on with God and the Christian life no matter what. No matter how many false teachers rise up, no matter how many scoffers that he'll talk about later, no matter how many Christians begin and don't end, no matter how many, no matter what anybody else is doing in the whole wide world, we have hoopamoni, perseverance, we continue on. And not one of us as a Christian should ever have a relationship with God that could ever cause us to stumble away in that relationship if some other Christian walked away from the Lord. Not a husband, not a wife, not a religious leader, not a anybody, anybody, anybody. Nobody gets that place in our life but God. It may disappoint us. It may send us into a mild depression for a few days. But it should never have an influence upon us continuing to continue in our own personal relationship with God. I'm not going to stand before God one day as a group or with whoever or this person or that or my wife Karen. She will stand before the Lord on her own. I will do so as well. It's not a group project that way. And so the importance of steadfast endurance. The interesting thing about this word hupomone, I'm going to say it as often as I can before I leave this point, is that every time it's used in the New Testament, it always has a forward look to it. In other words, it isn't this grim kind of hunkering down and existing as a Christian in the fallenness of the world around us. It continues because and perseveres because of something in the future that makes the persevering worth it. And Peter gets into that in verse 11, and that is an abundant entrance into heaven when the time comes. And so backsliding is not an option. And it isn't easy to persevere in the face of so many things that we face as Christians in this world, and it's getting harder in the United States. But we learn a lot as we persevere. We learn about our commitment to the Lord. And then what's the option? To go back? The same sins that held me in bondage before I came to know Christ. The same selfishness, the same ugliness, the same me is just there waiting. Just waiting to take control of my life once again. If I'm crazy enough to go back and let that happen. And so there isn't any going back. And, not, and there isn't any with this hoopamone no caving and going with the flow of the world around us as the false teachers were suggesting. No thank you. And to our perseverance, he says, we're to add godliness. And godliness speaks of being devout or reverent toward God. 
It means that I care more about what God thinks of me than what anybody else thinks of me in a whole wide world or any group of people think of me. And then to godliness, we're to add in verse 7, brotherly kindness. And the, and the Greek word for brotherly kindness is Philadelphian. Some of you may not be aware of the fact that the city of Philadelphia means brotherly love. Was a city ever so misnamed? If you go to an Eagles game, I mention that because I'm a friend of Joe Foch who pastors the Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia. Great work of the Lord there. Maybe he'll hear this and... Um, do something mean to me, I don't know. <laughs> but brotherly love. And, and so Peter says we're to be growing in our affection for other Christians. I say it fairly often, but until I can say it another way, a better way, I'll keep saying it the same way, I'm always trying to improve. But anywhere you see a Christian, anywhere you see a Christian who is talking the talk and walking the walk, they pay a private price for that and the fallenness of this world. They may never tell you the price. You may never know. But you pay a price to live this life in this world. It's just the way that it is. And so that kind of person, our fellow Christian, is in need of the warm affection of fellow Christians, especially when faithful, obedient, biblical Christians not only become the target of persecution from the world, but from those who claim to be Christians but who are not, like these false teachers and these false prophets. And I think that will become one of the great dangers to us as Christians. And I'm preparing myself for it. I hope it doesn't happen. But the Bible seems to indicate that. Where a person who is a Christian and they stand on this Word of God, this Word of God that has transformed lives for thousands of years, and they say, this is the book that defines my definitions of right and wrong and my definitions of good and bad. I think that one day the attack against us will be as great from those who profess to be Christian but do not hold that view of the Scriptures as any persecution we will ever face from the world. And I think it will be even more ruthless. He says, to brotherly kindness, we are to add love. And that word love is agape love. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the love that God has for us. It's the anyway love. The agape love, the, the love that God shows, agape love is a love that does what's best for the other person. So often you sometimes you hear people talking and Christians and all, and they'll look and somebody, some Christian will do something that was difficult in, to do in a situation, something difficult to say to another person. Say, well, that wasn't very loving. As if everything that comes under the banner of love, we do under this like warm emotion of the flesh of, of love. God loves me, and He loves every Christian. You know one of the ways He reminds us that He loves us? Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. 
He spanks. It's one of the reasons I know he loves me so much. I'm so confident in his love. He keeps me on a choke chain in this relationship with him, and wonderfully so. Love, true love, will do what is best in a circumstance, even when it's the hard thing to say, but it's the right thing to say and the thing that needs to be said. And even when it's hard to do, but it's the right thing that needs to be done. That's the way this love expresses itself. And again, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it comes from God. And these false teachers were under this banner of this emotional, carnal kind of love that wasn't doing what was best for people, but they were doing what was popular, but very, very destructive. And so we ask ourselves as we look at these virtues in our life, as Christians and we ask ourselves, do these mark our lives? And am I still growing in these virtues? And if we're not growing, we really do need to stop in the privacy of our own heart and realize something is wrong. I have come under the influence of some false prophet or some false teacher that has convinced me that I can stop growing in a relationship with God and that it's okay. So you say, well, listen, I don't know what false prophet or false teacher I would be listening to. This is the only church I come to. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. You're not going to put that on me. We can have, again, that liar within our own heart. Now, let me close as Peter does this section, reasons for living this life of virtue, and he gives us five in verses 8 through 11. And you notice the first word of verse, uh, 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 verse 8 there is the word for, and that's a reason word. So he gives us the reasons for living this kind of life. In verse 8, he says that spiritual growth in these godly virtues is the only way to come to a full and correct knowledge of Jesus. The false teachers were saying, you can come to a full knowledge and intimate relationship with Jesus uh, living a sin-filled life. But Peter declares that no one can really come to know Jesus well, have a deep relationship with him except through a godly life. That's the only kind of person that's going to understand Jesus, and it's the only kind of person that Jesus will reveal himself to. Let me read you another favorite of mine. Jesus speaking, John chapter 14, verse 21. He said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It is revelation, revelation, and a growth in depth and understanding of God occurs in an obedient relationship with the Lord. He tells us in verse 9, Peter, Peter's, uh, Peter gives us his word concerning what an absence of these things, these virtues, says about someone who professes to be a Christian. He says they're short-sighted. We call that nearsightedness today. For those of you who don't have glasses and you've never given it any consideration, a person who's nearsighted can see something up close, but they can't see far away. So he's saying this kind of a person who is living this kind of a life, they can't see the big picture. They can't 
see afar off. Their focus is completely focused upon the immediate temporal things of life, the meaningless things of life, rather than upon heaven and upon eternity. And he says, as a result, they even risk blindness. That is, to lack growth in these areas, these virtues, and still consider myself to be a spiritual person is a person that's blind to their own true condition. Failure to grow in Christian character reveals, Peter said, that I have forgotten that I was cleansed from my sins. And the Christian who abhors what they once were before they came to know the Lord will never, ever want to be that person again. But more than that, they will want to spend the rest of their life growing in the opposite direction. Once he, he longed to be delivered from his life of sin, and God did it in a person's life, and, and then is it a step forward to want to return to those sins as these false teachers were advocating? And then in verse 10, it is by spiritual growth or fruit that we make our calling and election sure. That's a big subject, the calling and election of God. So I'm going to spend three hours talking about that. I will reconcile uh, God's sovereignty and free moral agency uh, for you. We'll order pizzas in. It will probably merge into the evening service, so don't eat all of them. No, we won't do that. It's a big subject, but I don't have time to get into it or the inclination this morning. But what Peter is saying here is that a growing Christian life is an evidence that we truly have been born again. It proves the reality of our salvation. And anyone who calls themselves a Christian, but their character or their lifestyle hasn't changed in any way at all, then Peter is saying they're deceived concerning their spiritual condition and their salvation. None of us are going to be perfect, but there should be change in our lives as a result of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. Faith without works is dead. James put it this way in his epistle, chapter 2. Do you not, uh, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In other words, a faith in Christ that does not produce a changed life is a dead faith. It is impossible, and I say this with some regularity, it is impossible for God Almighty, we're not talking about an angel, we're not talking about a ghost, it is impossible for God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life and for there to be no change in that human life. It just simply cannot happen. The growth may be slow. It may be one change after another, after another, after another. But there is change and there is growth. James said also in that second chapter of, of his epistle, he said, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And his res James's response to that is, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And James is saying that a true faith in Jesus will be characterized by fruit or obedience to God's Word.
John wrote in his first epistle. This is the apostle of love. When we talk about John, we think about John. John's going to be like the hugger in heaven. Oh, John, I need a hug. John was an apostle of love for sure. But boy, could he say it straight. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's known as clarity. But there has to be clarity on the single most important issue in life that affects our eternity. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good, bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. From that same sermon, this is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. He said, many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then here's the reason. You who practice lawlessness. And why it's so significant is Jesus says many will stand before him in that condition on that day. I would never ever want to cast doubt concerning a Christian who is truly a Christian upon their salvation. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about the kind of person who makes a profession of faith in Christ at 8 years old or 14 years old or 18 years old or 25 years old and no change has occurred in that person's life. I beg you to listen. Those of you who attend this church regularly, you know I am not a sheep beater, and I am not a people beater. I like to think that I treat people with respect, at least as much as I know how to do. But this is a serious, serious issue, and I don't want anyone to be confused on this issue. A profession of faith in Jesus that is not coupled with the fruit of obedience, it's not a true faith. It's only a profession. As the old saying goes, no fruit, no root. Never trust in a profession of faith that has not produced a change in your life. Again, it's impossible for the Holy Spirit to come into a human life and for that life to remain unchanged. He tells us in verse 10 that a life of growth in Christ-likeness and godly character protects us from stumbling. It certainly protects us from falling prey to false teachers, which can only lead us into sin and lead us into addiction and disgrace. One of the great things about growing an authentic relationship with God that's based upon what we know about God from His Word is that relationship is so fabulous that when people come with some other kind of bogus thing, you're not even tempted to go in that direction. I've, been, I've walked with the Lord since 1980. That doesn't make me the old wise owl. It makes me older. But I've seen some things. 
Do you know how many winds of doctrine, how many false doctrines have blown through Christianity in the last 30-some years? That just I've been walking with the Lord in the United States of America. And yet, here I stand, by the grace of God. But none of them have ever appealed to me because none of them can compare to what I enjoy with God with a cup of tea and my Bible open and a pad in a chair to begin the day in my devotional life and relationship with the Lord. So it inoculates us against the nonsense that goes on all around us under the banner of Christianity, and it protects us from stumbling. And then verse 11, the ultimate reward of a growing obedient Christian life is that it assures us of an abundant entrance into heaven. I'm going to stand before God one day. I'm going to stand before Jesus one day. Everybody's going to stand before Jesus one day. I'll face him as a savior, as a judge. That's the old-time religion. Nobody likes it anymore, but that's the truth. But I'm going to stand before him as a safe person. It's called the beam seat of Christ, the reward seat of Christ. One day in my future, I will stand before Jesus, and I will look right into his eyes. And as a Christian, you're going to do the same thing. And all I will care about at that time is certainly not what anybody thought about me in this world. All I will care about is what comes out of his mouth at that moment in time. And my lone desire will be to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, without which no life can be considered a success. I don't care what kind of a shack I live in in heaven after that. I don't care if my crown is a beanie with a propeller on it and I have to wear it for the rest of eternity. If that's in my memory bank, if that happens between me and Jesus, I'm set for eternity. And this is how it happens. Not by what the false prophets and the false teachers were doling out 2,000 years ago and continue to do the same old thing today. And so let's grow and grow and grow and grow and keep growing in our relationship with the Lord and in Christ-likeness. That's what Peter is wanting to communicate to them and to us. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, somebody may say, well, who would want to become a Christian after hearing all of that? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. When a person has lived under the so-called wisdom of that world, or parents, or teachers, or philosophers, or, 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 or whatever's in our own minds, or the philosopher, the false teacher that's in our own heart, 
And it produces the bondage and the addiction and the sinfulness and the ugliness of person. And when a person wakes up one day and says, I do not like the person that I am. Is there a change? Is there an alternative to that? Then all of this is immensely attractive to them. And that's a life that the Holy Spirit is working in and drawing to himself. And the Bible says that God will change any of us that desires to be changed. And that we'll put our, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God will in an instant make us into a new creation. Old things will pass away. Behold, all things will become brand new. And he'll do it. He'll do that miracle in your life this morning. And there are going to be pastors and men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to enter into the beauty of this life and so much more. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving this morning. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. If you... Before we do that, if you're here today and you're that 8-year-old or 14-year-old or 20-year-old or 30-year-old who made a profession of faith in some church or some place somewhere and nothing ever changed or happened in your life, you need to settle the issue of Jesus' Lordship tonight, this morning as well. And these same men and women would love to pray with you and pray for you related to that. I'm going to be in heaven one day. This is, this is a big living room that we're in right now. I'm going to go to heaven someday. I'm going to be there. And I want every single person to be there as well. And my heart is so small in that area compared to the heart of God. He loves you. And he wants to save you. And he wants to lead you in the Christian life that he has for you. And if you have no confidence that you have tapped into that and begun that relationship with God, then begin that relationship with him today. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's unmistakable. Thank you for its instruction. Thank you for what it does inside of us. And we give you praise, Lord, for the privilege of being able to live this Christian life and we thank you for the person, the human being that you are making us into as we walk with you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your forgiveness in our life. Thank you so much for the joy of being able to live a different kind of life before this whole wide world, not perfect, but very different from what we were in order, Lord, to communicate to this whole world that what you've done in us you will do in anyone. Thank you for all that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, in the name of the one who has made our life possible through his blood. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.